You're listening to the Go Global, Go Big podcast, powered by Globig. We cover topics designed to accelerate your global expansion. You're listening to the Go Global, Go Big podcast, powered by Globig. We cover topics designed to accelerate your global business. Hello, I'm Anka Corbin, the founder and CEO of Globig. Today's hot topic is all about hiring international. And our wonderful guest today is Ben Wright, the founder and CEO of Velocity Global, a global employment services company and a true innovator in this space. Welcome, Ben. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Anka. It's a pleasure to uh, join you. And hello to everyone listening in. So, Ben, tell us a little bit about your journey. I mean, you created Velocity Global. You obviously saw some, you know, big need in the marketplace. How did you come up with this and how did you come, you know, kind of get to where you are today? Yeah, happy to talk through it. So, you know, my story is um, I, uh, I've been in the international business space for some time. Um, and was in a, an adjacent space for kind of five or six years, really helping facilitate companies set up and, and operate their international operations. And it was it was during that time that we um, honestly kind of got hit over the head, if you will, right? Kept having companies coming to us and saying, you know, we're, we're trying to expand overseas, but we don't love the options available to us. Um, and this isn't every case, um, but, it, but in a number of cases, they said, you know, we're, we're just looking for a different way to approach our international expansion. And, and what they wanted was something that could be done quicker, something that could be done at a lower cost, and something that would allow them a, a level of flexibility, right? Um, and you think about kind of some of the, the key business concepts that are bandied about in books and, and LinkedIn articles today, um, you know, the, 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 the journals, the business journals, and they talk about lean and they talk about agile. Um, and so companies want to kind of sort of apply that same concepts into their international expansion. And so it, it got me and it got us to, to thinking about you know, potentially creating a a new way uh, in which companies could achieve that international expansion, and so um, that's what led us to to start Velocity Global. Um, and you know, the the category that that we're creating is is not rocket science, but 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 truly is a, a different way. Um, and uh, you know, effectively, it's a, it's a model using an employer of record model that allows companies to uh, enter foreign markets at a, a fraction of the time, significantly reduce the amount of time that it takes the executive team to be involved, reduces costs of doing so by fifty percent or more, um, and keeps an unparalleled level of, of flexibility as it relates to uh, to employing people around the world. And so, um, you know, just last week we celebrated two years. And so, you know, two years in, um, it, it appears that we're, we're onto something, that, that companies, in fact, are looking for a different way to be agile and, uh, and lean as it relates to their international expansion. And so we're, we're really leading the charge and in, in changing the way in which companies expand overseas. 
Mm, that's excellent. You know, when I was really trying to learn a little bit more about the space, I noticed that there are a number of ways that it's described. And maybe you can help us kind of unpack like what each of those means. I've seen PEO firm, I've seen international <laughs> HR services, I've seen FSAS, which was actually fairly new to me. Are they the same thing? Are they different? Are they just kind of, you know, depending on the country? Yeah, great question. Honestly, kind of the different ways in which we package it uh, are all the same solution. It's just what it, what resonates potentially more with our customers. So if you're a small to potentially mid-size U.S. company, you may be familiar with the concept of PEO, and PEO stands for Professional Employer Organization. It is a very U.S.-centric term, um, and the model itself really only applies to small and mid-sized businesses. So, um, and you know, without getting into boring into too much detail, the U.S. PEO model is a co-employment model. And is specific to the U.S. market because um, we have, you know, unique to most places around the world. In the U.S., there's a, a significant um, private health insurance field as opposed to a lot of the national programs globally. Um, and so it allows you to get group buying discounts on that private insurance. Um, so for those small to mid-sized companies, particularly U.S. Uh, headquartered companies, the concept of international PEO resonates. Um, in terms of FSAS, you know, that's our created uh, name and, and it stands for Foreign Subsidiary as a Service. Um, and again, it, it's the same thing, but it's taking kind of a slightly different angle to the, the understanding of it, which is um, rather than go create your own foreign entity, legal entity or a subsidiary, um, effectively utilize our infrastructure as a service, right? So rather than, again, setting up your own infrastructure, use ours and basically, you know, tie into to our infrastructure so that you don't have to set up your own, at least for a period of time, you know, potentially you graduate off of it at some point. And so that's FSAS. And then, um, you know, overall, uh, you know, HR services, um, and employment services more broadly are, are really the business that we're in. We, we help companies employ people anywhere around the world. And that encompasses all things of HR, employment, you know, kind of really touches some legal elements, um, as well as, frankly, the, the accounting and tax side in that um, you typically don't have to do some of the things from an accounting and tax perspective that you would if you had your own foreign subsidiary. You know, that seems to be one of the biggest benefits of doing this, and it's an especially good way, I think you had mentioned earlier, of getting into the market faster and much more affordably. What are some of the other reasons that companies use it, um, this sort of a service, because it just seems so smart, right? <laughs> well, now you're just buttering me up, Anka. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, <clears throat> I mean, we're biased, but we certainly think this is absolutely the way when companies with a small footprint who want to be agile and lean enter a market that this model is kind of a no brainer. Um, so the, 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 the times you should be thinking about a model like this are, um, it's always around employment. So it's always either hiring a local national 
national or sending a foreign national into a country. And to be clear, it's it's in a country where you don't are you haven't already established your own legal presence. Okay, um, so if you need to hire a local national, send a foreign national in. The question is, do we have time? Let's say you've got a new candidate. Do we have time to agree to the terms with this new candidate and then go through all the steps to set up that legal entity? If you're setting up a legal entity in the UK, you can literally do it in a matter of a few weeks. If you're setting up a legal entity in Brazil, you should expect eight to 12 months, right? So can you wait that long in order to, for that employee to start, or are you going to lose that candidate, right? So if you need a very quick way to be able to employ compliantly um, while waiting to set up that entity, this is a great way to look at it. Um, two is perhaps it's a fixed duration project, right? Maybe you're um, going to employ someone to work on a client account for a two-year project. And um, potentially, um, if you look at it and you are employing person, they're doing certain things, you may want to consider actually setting up that legal entity for permanent establishment or tax issues. But the real business case is, does it make sense to invest all the time and money to set up an entity to employ this person when you know perfectly well in two years' time you're going to have to tear that entity back down because there's no further work in that country. The problem is whatever you spend in terms of time and money to set up, as a general rule, you can expect three times that amount to tear it back down. Countries love you getting into their country. They don't want you to leave. So they make it a little more difficult, time-consuming, and expensive. Um, and then the third case scenario is, um, honestly, companies, they, let's say they're putting a salesperson into a new country or a new region. Um, and there are a ton of risks associated with that. It may be a new employee, so you don't know if that employee is going to work out or not. You're testing that market to see if, in fact, there's a great consumer or buyer base for your service or product or whatever it may be. Um, you know, lots of unknowns. If you can remove one of those variables, um, it'll increase the chance of success. And not establishing a heavy footprint can remove one of those, uh, those um, impediments. So the thing you can't get away from is whether or not that individual will be successful. But if you just want to get in and test that market and you want the ability to pull out, if necessary, um, it is far easier to do so under you know, the employer of record, FSAS, international PEO model. Um, and then the last, and not to belabor this too much, but um, if you're sending a foreign national into a country, um, basically, every country around the world, if you're sending a foreign national into a country uh, to work, they typically have to have that right to work via a visa or a work permit. Um, a local company in that country has to be the sponsoring organization. So if you, company, don't have your own local company to sponsor that work permit, there's really no legal way from an immigration perspective to get them in. And so this model is a great one where 
we can provide the employer of record and the sponsoring of that work permit. Um, and then again, it, let's say they're there for a long period of time and you grow up that organization, you can then over time go set up your own company and then take over sponsorship for that work permit. Yeah, we found that's one of the bigger pain points in actually you know, the visa process, not necessarily and actually never really being in sync with the timing that companies have for wanting to expand. So if you can decouple those two things and really focus on, you know, the, the business portion and then separating that with the getting your team members over there by using a service such as yourself, that seems like a better, you know, especially in the in the short term, a really important solution. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, take that even a, a step further is there's many cases where you have to have a track record um, of you know uh, in that country, right? So there's a lot of countries where they say you have to be in business for two years in our country before you can go sponsor foreign nationals, right? So sometimes even saying, okay, we're gonna send someone in a country, we're gonna go set up a subsidiary, that may not even work because you need you know, two years of financials, prove you're a viable entity, prove that you're in good standing before they allow you to actually bring on foreign nationals. So it's a way to get in really quickly um, without kind of as much of the red tape, you still have to go through all the immigration red tape, right? But um, it, it, you're right, gets you in fast and allows you to focus on the business. Mm. What's the difference? So sometimes people think they'll just get a contractor, for example, versus an employee. And is that really country specific? Or what is the difference between those two things within this process? Uh, great, great question. Um, so there are clear differences between contractors and employees. And um, as we probably all know, companies tend to use contractors more liberally than uh, the regulations allow, right? Um, so, so this is something we, we always kind of want to educate our clients on. There is a great time and a place to use a contractor. And so we'll start with what a contractor is. And then if it's not that, <laughs> let's assume it's an employee. So a contractor is, in an ideal world, they have their own company and you contract with that company. And there's even countries where they actually have that codified in the law that you cannot hire an individual contractor. You have to hire a company. An example of that is Brazil. There's no concept of independent contractor in Brazil. They have to set up their own kind of limited liability company and you have to contract with them, with the company, excuse me. Um, but th that's more the uh, exception versus the rule globally. So a contractor in a deal world has their own company, but if they don't, um, what you want from a contractor is, first off, they need to be free to, and also probably should, support multiple companies. You can get into trouble if you are the sole employer of that individual, right? Even if they're not working 40 hours a week or 35 hours a week in France, um, you want to not only give them the ability to, you want to promote the fact that, hey, you really should be working for multiple companies because it helps defend you from the employer-employee relationship. Um, 
Two, you, you, uh, a contractor is really given a project, right? So they're not brought on board indefinitely. There is a specific project. There is a start and a finish. There's deliverables. And you're not to, uh, it's not someone that you manage their day to day. You basically give them the freedom to complete that project. There's check-ins, but you don't want to kind of manage their day to day. Same thing is you, you, you really, um, this contractor is kind of free to do the work in the timeline that, that they see fit during the day. You know, they still need to complete it by a certain date. But again, you shouldn't be doing things like you need to be in the office by eight and you can leave by five. That's an employee versus a contractor. Um, finally, you know, contractors typically do not receive company provided equipment like a laptop. Um, they typically don't have their utilities in their home office paid for by the company. They typically don't have business cards in the name of the company. Um, they don't update their LinkedIn profile to say they work for the company. Um, and of course, you, you, you can't realistically provide things like benefits to someone who's a contractor, and, and that includes equity. But you so, can do that with your service, so they would actually be, in fact, employees. So all those things that you were talking about, you can do then. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So maybe to take kind of a, a, a answer the question with a half step back, you know, that there's clients, uh, our clients and companies are really interested in our solution because they, they look at this relationship with this individual and say, we know very well that this is truly an employment relationship and not a contractor. And on the other side, the contractor may look at it and say, hey, you know, I want to be an employee. I don't want to be a contractor, right? Um, so um, companies look at that and say, okay, here's an individual. We don't want them to be a contractor, but because we don't have a legal entity, we have no way to actually make them an employee, you know, a de facto employee in that country. Because to be an employee of a country, you have to have in a country, you have to have a local company be your employer so that they can file and remit withholdings and taxes on your behalf. Um, and so that's exactly right. So our solution um, does not fit for contractors. It is absolutely when it's a, a true employment relationship where both the employer and the employee get all the benefits of a true employment relationship, which is the calculation of payroll, the withholdings for all the social security and taxes, the remittance of those to the government, and then, of course, access to the national health programs, unemployment, family leave, uh, and all the things that come along, as well as supplementary benefits, if in fact that's something that the employer or the employer interested in and available in that country. Now, do the, um, do the employee regulations follow those from the home country or those in the foreign country that you're doing business in then? Great question. Um, it always follows the local country. Um, and frankly, that, that's one of the pitfalls, if you will, that we see some companies get into in that they take an employment contract, which they utilize locally at headquarters, and they give it to an employee in a foreign country. Right, without deference to local employment contracts or local employment law. A, a great example of that is uh, in the US, again, very unique, um, but we have this concept of at will employment. 
Um, that concept doesn't, for all intents and purposes, apply outside of the US. So if you utilize a contract that has things like at-will employment, it's not to say that contract in that country is null and void, but that's just simply not applicable. Um, and uh, generally speaking, employment regulations and employment law around the world say the employment regulations for that country um, are the precedents. And if your employment contract is uh, silent on the matter or conflicts, it doesn't matter because the local employment law trumps. So you obviously want to make sure that you're incorporating the appropriate local labor law elements into that contract. Uh, if for no other reason than it provides you the, the greatest um, uh, you know, support and greatest uh, defense should there are any employment-related issues arise. Yeah, let's talk about some of those situations because I think one of the, I would imagine a big part of what you have to do is even help companies understand how those other countries work and what their regulations are and even just how different they are. I know you mentioned the at-will employment, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the benefits that are required and some of the things around, you know, what if someone doesn't work out and how you really have to treat that very, very differently and just some of the things to just be aware of. No question. Um, we, we find kind of the, the most important elements of consideration are, you know, one, knowing coming in, um, what type of benefits are required, what kind of benefits are customary, as well as what you need to be considering upon termination. So um, typically, uh, benefits provided to the employee, and again, we're just going to talk very generally globally, um, almost always, uh, certainly non-US uh, countries, almost always a national healthcare program that uh, in most cases, contributions are made by both the employer and the employee. There's typically a pension or superannuation, which um, again, in most cases is, is uh, contributed to by both the employer and the employee. There is an unemployment um, there's, uh, in, in many cases, you know, family, uh, benefits, uh, or allowances that are typically paid by the, um, by the company. Um, and, and, you know, there's other kind of, uh, depending on the country, other allowances, which, which may in fact be required. Um, one of the things to bear in mind, and this is again, potentially more the exception than the rule, but there's a, a real number of countries that actually mandate what is colloquially called uh, a 13th month payroll or 14, in some cases, a 14th month payroll. And that basically means it's an annual bonus, which you're required to give to the employee. And they call it a 13th month because it equals one month of pay. And so you should anticipate that, again, not only is it customary, and in, in, in some countries it's required, that at a certain point during the year, and in those countries, they often say, at this period, you need to give that. You need to give a, a full bonus for the 13th month, uh, kind of regardless of you know, the employee's um, performance. It is just simply a right for being an employee. And again, in a small number of countries, there's even a 14th month. Um, so all things to be aware of, and then um, kind of speaking on the the other side, um, should that 
that uh, employment relationship come to an end, whether it be voluntary or involuntary, you need to be aware of the process to follow, but most importantly, it's really around the um, the, the notice period. Um, so notice periods vary depending on the country, depending on the seniority and years of service. Um, as a general rule, we think you can anticipate, you know, a month uh, of time for notice period. Um, but you have some extremes, and and in my opinion, you know, Mexico is an example of an extreme where. Um, in the first year of employment, certainly after any probation period, uh, the employee automatically gets three months of notice. And for every year of service thereafter, you add a month. Um, and so anticipate that, um, you know, you can employ people in Mexico, but there's absolutely going to be some residual liabilities uh, if and when that termination ends, again, whether it's voluntary or involuntary. So let me make sure I'm clear on that. I've I've seen this in the UK as well, personally too, but I think a lot of our listeners might not be aware of that. So not only does the person that's employed have to give extensive notice, but should the company need to terminate, there's also extensive notice. What about severance and any sort of payment after that? Yep. Great question. Um, you know, I feel like with all of these, we can give the asterisk. It depends on the country, right? Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> but you're, but you're right. You know, in, um, in the UK, they call it garden leave, right? Which is kind of that, that period of time of that notice. Um, in certain countries, you are allowed to pay out the employee in lieu of that notice period. In certain countries like India, whether it be voluntary or involuntary, that employee still has to come to work, which actually creates a very interesting dynamic for the employee who gives notice but then has to come back into work every day for the next month. <laughs> um, <laughs> But then in terms of severance, you know, depending on the country, there, there's certainly uh, in many cases, well, I shouldn't say in many cases, in some cases, a, a further severance, which is required. What, what companies typically do is they, it, it's always, uh, you know, companies typically provide it when it's, it's written into local labor law. And what companies typically do is accrue for that and basically put it, you know, reserve it and put it in a fund as time goes on. So Brazil being an example, you have to give notice period, but there's also a termination. And that termination is effectively one month, right, for every year of work. Um, uh, that severance. And so what companies typically do is they reserve a portion of that for every single month the employee is on board. Because if you leave during the course of a year, you're still entitled to a portion of that. Um, and again, while every country is different, there's a lot of cases where there's a very short window of time in which you have to pay that out. Otherwise, penalties and, and fines are accrued. And so reserving that amount as time goes on is a very good best practice because you have those funds. And again, Brazil being an example, you have five business days to pay that out. And so you've got to, let's say it's again a foreign country, you make this termination or the employee leaves, um, you've got to fund that thing in the next five business days. You've got to get those funds into Brazil. They've got to be in the employee's account. Otherwise, your, uh, your costs are going to continue to go up. So knowing that there are these additional 
costs, if you will, should the relationship change. How do companies typically manage for that in the fr- at the front end? Do they hire at a lower salary and then make sure that that's baked in later? Or do they just add that on top of it? I'm just curious in the recruiting phase, whether that's um, calculated into the negotiations initially, or it's just assumed an additional cost later on. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's delightful that you have things like this podca- podcast, Anka, where hopefully someone somewhere will take a little nugget from this. Um, the uh, what you want to do is avoid surprises. So what we see from employers that are not in something like a 13th or 14th month jurisdiction and are not familiar with it, will do things like give the employees uh, an offer letter that says you will be paid 5,000 local currency per month, right? They then look at that and anticipate, okay, 5,000 times 12 will be my my salary cost, right? What they're not recognizing is there's a 13th month and potentially 14th month. So you want to be aware of that before you put your offer letters out so that you can anticipate. And, you know, honestly, it's a discussion with the employee to say, it's really discussion and negotiation around employment. You got to understand what what you're willing to pay for the employee as well as what the employee needs. And the employee's needs may be on an annual basis, which means that you can, if it fits in that model, you can sort of reduce the monthly salary accordingly and make up for it with that 13th month, right? Or potentially the termination. Um that being said, uh, th- uh, sorry, around the 13th month, that being said, things around termination um, are, are typically what we've found in employee negotiations, not necessarily something that gets factored in in the employee's mind. They see that as a right. Um, they don't like the idea um, that you may reduce their salary because you could potentially have a severance payment. Um, it doesn't go over very well. You know, behind the scenes, you may be able to be thinking about that and adjusting accordingly. Um, but again, the employees tend to see that as a right. So we see that 13th month, 14th month as a negotiation po- negotiating point in terms of total compensation. But you shouldn't necessarily be communicating with the employee that, hey, we may have a month severance for you. And so we're going to reduce your pay accordingly. Um, just human nature as such where that that, that doesn't that doesn't go over very well. No, no, I imagine not. But I would think that the savvy business owners are going to be thinking about that in advance, at least, you know, being prepared for a potential challenge at some point. So one of the, I have another question about profit sharing and any sort of stock option type relationships. I would imagine there are some limitations to that Let's talk a little bit about that. And is again, is that country specific or is that are there any sort of things to be aware of within that? Yeah, very with both profit sharing and stock absolutely country specific. And as a matter of fact, uh, th- th- there's not that many things where 
where we don't feel comfortable kind of generalizing and, and I just don't feel comfortable generalizing globally uh, around profit sharing and global equity because it, it varies so significantly and has such an impact on a country by country basis. Um, so profit sharing, you just need to look at whether that's something that you can do in a particular country um, and certain countries actually require it. Um, and so in the cases and where they require it, you know, you need to understand what exactly those laws are. Um, you typically need to make it equitable in those countries um, across where it is required. Typically, you have to give kind of the same level of profit sharing to the same levels across the organization. Um, and fortunately, around profit sharing, it typically is, here's a generalization, but it, it typically takes the form of a, a standard compensation. And so there's nothing too complex about it, but you got to make sure the structure is right. Um, Equity itself is a, whew, I mean, that's a, that could be three podcasts and, and frankly, <laughs> a, above my pay grade. <laughs> Fair enough. But it's just to know that that is something to be really, this is more of a heads up. You may need to check on this. Right? Yes. And, and every time we happen to work with quite a number of technology companies, you know, early stage, late stage, public, um, where equity compensation is a really important form of remuneration. Um, and as they're, of course, they're working with us, so they're, they're doing international things. Um, we always strongly advise um, don't even think about granting equity for a first time to employees in a country without doing your diligence. There's um, some great uh, international equity attorneys um, who can advise you on those things on a country by country basis. Um, really worth talking to them because you know, there's cases in countries where um, you as a company find equity compensation to be a very important part, again, of, of your culture and your remuneration and want them to all feel a part of it. There's certain countries where the employees simply say, we don't want it. It represents such a negative tax burden for us, the employee, that please do me the favor, don't give me equity, right? So it, it's, it's important to know. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about a the situation of having a U.S. team and you're going to establish, you know, bring someone into a certain country and they're going to work with your services. Are there benefits or maybe even some challenges with the taxes and how they then are being taxed as compared to their role in the U.S.? And are there things that companies need to maybe be aware of and, and kind of plan in advance that they might need to change the compensation structure even for their existing employees. Yeah, um, there, there are. Um, so again, speaking of kind of U.S. companies, um, one of the things that that is is foreign, no pun intended, to, to U.S. executives is that around the world, you can often provide kind of in lieu of supplementary benefits, you can, you're, it's actually legal generally to provide allowances or, or additional pay in lieu of benefits, right? Um, so something you may want to take a look at, it may be more cost effective, it may require less administration. Um, so something you can look at. There's also jurisdictions, and I think about kind of India 
I know there's other ones, but India kind of in an extreme case of there are a lot of tax advantaged for the employee, tax advantaged allowances, which you can provide so that, you know, the, you, you, you want to pay the employee again, let's say 5,000 rupees per month or whatever the number is, you can actually break that out where a portion of it is base salary, but you know uh, you also provide a transportation allowance uh, and you can provide a uh, professional pursuit allowance and a, a travel allowance that actually the employee can use when they travel. Um, those sorts of things, which when you add them all up, get to that 5,000 per month that you are intending, but the tax implications of the individual uh, are much more favorable. Um, and so it's a, a great thing uh, if you can, can learn about them because it will, it will help you attract and retain talent in those countries. Uh, and again, you know, these are concepts that for all intents and purposes are, are very foreign to U.S. companies where the individual can typically do some things around their own tax planning, but there aren't as many levers available to the company uh, where that may be the case in some uh, international markets. That's very interesting. I actually was not aware of it, but that would make sense. And um, let's talk about the easiest countries to work in and the hardest. Like, just let's get out, you know, some throw some extremes out here. <laughs> All right. Well, I do. We, we don't want to be kind of ethnocentric. It depends on where you come from, right? <laughs> because if you're accustomed to working in uh, Latin, if you're a Latin America headquartered company, then doing business in some of the other Latin American countries may seem very similar and easy, right? Um, but to kind of taking that element off the table, we think and we find the easiest are, and really in this order, UK first and foremost, Canada, and then Singapore. Um, very equal and balanced uh, in terms of the employer and employee rights and responsibilities. Um, you don't necessarily have the onerous termination provisions. Um, and, you know, again, they're generally kind of uh, easy to, to, to get into um, and, and not a lot of rules and, and codes around that, that make things difficult in some other countries. Flip that, uh, and 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 I personally think the hardest again are in this order: number one, Brazil; number two, France; number three, Thailand. Um, you, you know, France is uh, well. Start with Brazil. It's there are, from what I understand, at this moment, fourteen million active lawsuits in the labor courts. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that tells you a lot. It tells you that it is a very employee-friendly regulatory environment, right? It also tells you that the employees use um, the labor courts as uh, leverage, right? Uh, it is, you know, it is just common if there is anything that the employees don't feel like they're getting kind of a just shake on, they will they will move it into the labor courts because they know the results will be favorable to them. It also means with 14 million active uh, cases and in a jurisdiction that with all due respect to Brazil moves incredibly slow with the rest of the world, you're going to be tied up in that labor court for a long time. Um, 
Second is is France. Uh, again, I think very well publicized, um, very employee friendly. Um, and, you know, French, I was in France last month and, and talking to some of the employees that we support. Um, and they they enjoy, you know, the, the environment in which they operate, right? And recognize that it is different than rest of the world uh, in many cases. Um, and so, you know, they have... Whether it's perceived or actual, there's certainly the perception that they have, they really hold the cards, right, as an employee. Um, and so that that can be complex from an employer. And then lastly is, is Thailand. And this one just gives us fits all the time. Um, it is the challenge with Thailand, honestly, is really sort of the change in the last year around the military junta rule. Um, it was a difficult place from an immigration and regulatory environment anyway, but now you know, there, there really doesn't seem to be a sticking to the rules, right? You've got the playbook, you've got the law, um, but depending on who you talk to in the government, it could be that or it could be something completely different. Um, and so you just have to expect that every day is a new surprise when employing people on Thailand. And I'll tell you firsthand that they're typically not the good kind of surprises. Right. No, absolutely. Much more complex. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe to add this too for non US companies, you know, US can be a difficult place to operate. It's pretty easy to set up your operations here, but we have in the US, there's incredible complexities around 50 states, mm -hmm. right? Um, we, yes, we have national laws. But the employment laws are almost are absolutely on a state by state basis. So withholdings differ. The employment law differs. Um, and again, for, for most companies coming outside the U.S. in, they're just not familiar with this very funky um, healthcare environment, which we have, which is largely privatized. Um, and so that in and of itself is just it's very much an unknown and it takes quite a bit to get used to. I think we're still getting used to it. <laughs> so <laughs> I completely understand that. What do you think our listeners need to know that I haven't asked? Is there anything that is uh, just, oh gosh, we should really make sure that everyone knows about this topic as well? Oh gosh, that is a great question. I mean, I, I feel like we've covered many of the elements, you know, yes, I, I think this is it. And, and, you know, for the sake of full disclosure, it really speaks to our model. But there's a reason why we created this business is um, in the years of doing international business, my personal experience shows that um, 90 to 95 percent of the challenges that companies ultimately face when having an international footprint are related to employment. Um, no question, you've got to monitor the tax code. Um, you need to be thinking about permanent establishment. Um, and you can kind of run afoul of those things. But, you know, it's not even the 80-20 rule. It's 90-10 it's or 95-5. It's always around employment. Um, and the advice that I have around that is um, just know coming in, there's a good time and a place to use contractors. Um, 
but don't use it just because you don't have any other way to employ people. Um, you know, an, an international employer of record like Velocity Global is a great solution to be able to employ people compliantly uh, and proactively, right? Um, so that you can be ensured that that both you and the employee are honestly setting it up in such a way where there's not going to be a ton of surprises down the road. Um, and again, you know, uh, one of the key things is is really focus on um, getting it set up right the first time because it, it's it's really not about the marriage; it's about the divorce. Um, and, and setting up that employment relationship correct right out of the gates is your your best way to avoid trouble. And um, you know, if you utilize an employer of record like Velocity Global, we certainly do that. If you if you have your own entity and employing them, spend the you know thousand dollars, two thousand uh, dollars, engage a local council and draw up some employment contracts that you are insured are up to date and regulatory uh, regulatorily compliant in that country because uh, it, it sets the right. It, it just sets the relationship out on the right stage, but it also provides all the best protections on the back end. Well, and and if anything, even in countries like China, if you do not have an active contract, it literally defaults into the relationship you don't want it to be, which is a full employment situation. So, Bingo. yeah. Absolutely critical, and I completely agree. Now, if someone would like to learn more about Velocity Global and the space, what's the best way for them to contact you? Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, honestly, best way, and you can learn all about us, um, it's uh, our website's uh, velocityglobal.com, www.velocityglobal.com. Um, you know, you can go on there and you can you can check us out. We've got uh, contact me forms where we move really quickly. We can respond uh, within 24 hours, typically within hours or minutes uh, if you do have questions. Um, and, and we're big proponents of uh, just helping companies. So whether or not ultimately our solution is the one that uh, makes the most sense for you, if we can just help companies succeed on a global basis, again, whether or not it's, it's something we, we ultimately support you on, we'd love to do that. So, so please reach out anytime, uh, contact us on there. And um, with capabilities in 171 countries, chances are whatever country you have questions on, we can probably support you. Mm. Ben, thank you so very much for joining us today on the Go Global, Go Big podcast powered by Globig. This was a fantastic session, and we look forward to you joining us for another great session on international expansion in the future. This is Anka Corbin, hoping that you all go global and go big. Thank you. Thank you.